If you are a teacher, parent, administrator, student, and or anyone who loves reconnecting children with nature, and you want to figure out how to cultivate learning gardens and nature-based curriculum, then this is the podcast, the Outdoor Classrooms Podcast. My name is Victoria Hackett. I am the founder of OutdoorClassrooms.com and the Secret Gardens Nature Classes. I love witnessing the magic that happens when children are playfully learning outdoors, observing the return of wonder and curiosity. Curiosity when children are interacting with nature is pure magic. This is the podcast that is going to help you capture children's interest and give you not only inspiration, but some real life strategies that are going to help you figure out how to use the outdoor space, your outdoor space, as a teaching tool so you can enlighten the playful learning experience for young children. Welcome to our Outdoor Classrooms community. Do you not know what to do with children outdoors during these cold winter months? It's normal to want to curl up and snuggle up through the cold winter months, but while skipping the outdoor time may seem like a great idea at the moment, it can be a problem for everyone in the long run. Germs, lack of exercise, and boredom quickly result in behavior problems and sick and miserable, unengaged kids. Stay tuned. Keep an eye out. You're going to want to get on the waiting list for our upcoming Exploring Nature in Winter Masterclass. It's going to be starting in February, but the doors will open to register at the end of January. So the folks that are on the waiting list will be able to get in early. So hop on over to our Facebook page, Outdoor Classrooms Facebook page, and or our Instagram page to get on the waiting list. See you there. Today we have Ray Pika here. She has been an early childhood education consultant since 1980 and is internationally known as a speaker, online course creator, and author. Ray has written 22 books, including a text on experiences in music and movement, and it's the fifth edition, What If Everybody Understood Child Development?, Straight Talk About Bettering Education in Children's Lives, and Spark a Revolution in Early Education, Speaking Up for Ourselves and Our Children. As a consultant, Ray has shared her expertise with such groups as Sesame Street Research Department, the Head Start Bureau, Centers for Disease Control, the President's Council on Physical Fitness, and Sports Gymboree, Nike, Nickelodeon, Blues Clues, Bright Horizons, and Health departments, schools, and resources and referral agencies throughout the country. She is most proud of her fierce defense of childhood. Welcome, without further ado, Ray Pika. Hello, everybody. We have Ray Pika here, author and amazing human, and she... (laughs) She is going to be talking with us about all her work and specifically we're going to get into really moving and learning and how we can be taking that outdoors. So welcome, Ray. Thank you, Victoria. I'm glad to be here. Oh, I'm so thrilled you're here. Uh, let's see, where should we start? I would love to just backpedal a little bit uh, and get a little bit of insight into your backstory in terms of really your story up into you know moving into becoming an author of 22, almost 23 
books, which is absolutely amazing to me. Well, backtracking, we're, we're talking decades. <laughs> I, I am really been the, around the sh- for a this, while now. The short version. <laughs> <laughs> well, I remember, I remember since fourth grade wanting to be a writer. And it was in my family, it was in the blood. My mother's uncle was a Pulitzer Prize winning reporter. And, you know, I don't know, it was just always inside of me. And I thought that I would grow up and just be a writer. But life had different plans. But I'm glad that the writing got to be part of it because I really do love it until I'm at the end of the book and then I hate it. You know, (laughs) the end of writing the book. It's just such a process. (laughs) So yeah, I mean, I just, I also love to dance. My mother used to say she would rather dance than eat. And we couldn't afford dance lessons when I was little. So I didn't start dance lessons until I was 26. And it was this sort of modern interpretive thing with a woman who'd been in vaudeville. It was very cool. And I don't know, then somebody asked me if I wanted to teach dance to little ones, to preschoolers. And I said, sure, why not? I'll try that. This is sort of how my career has progressed. Sure, I'll try that. <laughs> yeah. And uh, I realized very quickly they didn't need dance so much as they needed creative self-expression and your basic you know, movement fundamentals, body and spatial awareness, all that good stuff. So I started studying movement education and it took over my life. So uh, the first many books were specifically about movement and I have written a textbook on on movement, but I've kind of branched out since then into advocacy and play and just my favorite book, which don't tell the others, is What If Everybody Understood Child Development? Mm -hmm. And I mean, there's a lot about movement in there because if you understand child development, you know that movement has got to be part of the childhood. But yeah, I, I just, my mission has become ensuring that children have a chance to be children, which sounds like the silliest of sentences, but early childhood professionals understand when I'm talking about and that child development guides our practices with them. I don't think it's too much to ask. Mm -hmm. So that's become my life's mission. That's beautiful. Beautiful. Thank you. It's so interesting to me because your 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 journey has actually been very similar to mine because I studied uh, education uh, thinking I wanted to be a dance therapist, uh, education, dance and psychology. Uh, I designed my own major as an undergraduate and then went in to get my master's in education. But I was very much like, I'm going to be a dance therapist and and movement and really that similar. I get goosebumps just thinking about it, but it's just like, oh, wow. It's so cool. It is so cool. (laughs) And it's people that, what, what are you doing? And it's it's, but it's that very similar, it's like like it's sort of like-minded souls coming together because it's... Yes, you know, yes. And then when I became a movement education consultant, I never knew what to call myself because right. nobody knew what the heck I was talking about. Yeah. And I remember uh, my husband at the time saying, I can't believe you have such trouble describing what you do. You know, the elevator speech was impossible. I couldn't describe it in a whole page. So yeah, Uh, then I just called myself a movement specialist. But people always seem to think that meant for children who had trouble moving, they Mm. didn't, nobody has ever realized, you know, the importance of movement in general, and, and how the body and the mind connect. Mm -hmm. So that's been a process. So you also in that somewhere in there, you worked with Sesame Street, the President's Council of Physical Education, Nike, Nickelodeon, many, many health departments. You really must have mastered your elevator speech because you you really got (laughs) to work with some pretty awesome people and places. I don't know quite how that happened. And if I had a better memory, I could tell you, you know, all (laughs) sorts of things. Uh, (laughs) 
I do know that <laughs> I consulted with Sesame Street twice, and it came about because of a colleague in New York City who was asked. They reached out to her. She's a physical education professor, and she specialized in, in early childhood. And she put together a team of people, including me, and we each had our own little spiel. I, the only one I remember, and I've got Sesame Street things all around me in the office, but the only thing I remember is the the one year... <laughs> It's, ter- it's terrible how little I remember. Don't ever ask me to write my memoirs. <laughs> they were doing games. The theme for the, the season was games. And so I went in and I gave my little talk. And at the time, they had all of the Sesame Street writers there. And they had the magazine people and a lot of departments that don't exist any longer. And I talked about cooperation versus competition, Mm. which is a real passion of mine. And the head writer at the time stood up and and at the end and said, well, if they never lose, how are they supposed to learn to lose? And I'm the kind of person who sometimes takes years to come up with a response to something (laughs) because stress just shuts down my brain completely. I have no idea what I said to him at the time. I remember that leading up to my part of the presentation, I had a splitting head. It was just nerve wracking. Yeah. Now I look back and I would love to do it again. You know, I would love to do it at this stage of my life and career when I would more fully appreciate those opportunities. You know, they they haven't come along. Those kinds of opportunities haven't come along in a while. And they've been around for dog's age. So with movement, and so we have a lot of listeners who are obviously it's outdoor classrooms and taking uh, this expertise in your in your movement career, uh, really understanding the ins and outs and the importance of, I love what you said in terms of it wasn't really movement that they needed, but it was the self-expression. Do you see, uh, I mean, I've sort of fell into nature-based education and and taking all of that good stuff outdoors. Uh, Any insight on that in terms of your work? Well, I mean, there are so many reasons to take things outdoors. I mean, even if you're playing a game like Follow the Leader that can very well be played indoors, you know, take it outdoors because Mm -hmm. the the outdoor lighting has so much to offer. I mean, there are studies showing it increases productivity. You know, it, it, is it the pineal or pineal gland? I never know how mm-hmm, that one's mm-hmm. pronounced that makes us feel better. And, you know, there are just so many reasons to be outdoors. There's, there's research showing that it reduces bullying and stress and just all kinds of wonderful things. So why wouldn't we want to go out there, you know, with the children? Right. And if you take a game like Follow the Leader, indoors, it's going to be more confined. You know, outdoors, you're going to have more space for it, which means more cardiovascular, you know, endurance is uh, promoted. And and there are going to be different things to avoid, you know, maybe a fallen log or or a rock or a swing set or whatever it might be. And And it it creates that novelty that the brain needs, mm-hmm. you know, to stay interested and engaged. So, so there are a lot of reasons to move outdoors. Uh, uh, you know, not th- I'm so thrilled that there are more nature-based programs now. But you know, if we just think about how a typical program looks at the outdoors, they often see it as break time for the teacher. Mm-hmm. And I don't. I'm not saying that they should get over-involved. You know, but there are ways that they can scaffold, that they can, you know, ask a question or present a challenge that gives the children a different idea of, you know, of what to do. And everything I've heard tells me that children have trouble knowing how to play these days, which is perhaps the most astonishing sentence I've ever said. I know. know? It's crazy. And you're writing 
writing you're writing more and more about that in terms of play and uh, yeah can you tell us more is, about yeah you know, tell us the about book your is new going book? to be called why play question mark how to make play an essential part of early education yeah. so each chapter looks at a different type of play and I've got two chapters one is I mean I've got a lot of chapters but relevant to our conversation one is outdoor play and one is nature play so and people might wonder why I have both yeah. why I've separated them but outdoor play doesn't necessarily have to involve nature play mm-hmm. you know it doesn't have to involve nature necessarily so I separated them into two different categories and they both have many 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 benefits my hope is that each of these chapters serves as a tool for advocating for them because it seems like early childhood professionals uh, you know they have to spend so much time justifying things like play these days mm-hmm. and it's it annoys the heck out of me yeah. <laughs> Why do you think, I mean, what, what is happening? Is it, is it, where do you think that is coming from? Why is it, why are we, why is the pendulum going too far in the wrong direction in terms of, and then that, and then because you become, you've really built an, a defense for childhood and play. And now in our discussions, merging that with, like you said, in your two chapters, nature play and being outdoors and being asked to write a book of, of such. Yes. So, meaning that there's a need. <laughs> Yes. Yes. I was approached by Teachers College Press to write this Mm -hmm. book. I had just finished, you know, one on advocacy called Spark a Revolution. And I didn't want to write another one. (laughs) But how could I say no to that? So, yeah, I don't know what's going on. I mean, there are multiple factors involved. (laughs) My first thought is people have just gotten crazy. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And there's so much misinformation floating around out there. There are myths that I'm constantly trying to to refute and we you know rebut and the biggest of them all is earlier is better this this idea that we have to get mm-hmm. children started as early as possible it seems as though we we are all just concerned i i I don't want to be harsh but it seems like <laughs> we're all just concerned with our own child and not children in general mm-hmm. and and we need to push and push and push so that child, you know, will have a chance in life. And, you know, that's another myth that it's a dog-eat-dog world out there. Mm-hmm. I mean, when you think about it, we have far more opportunity in over the lifespan to cooperate than compete. Yeah. You know, we have to get along with and collaborate, work with family members, spouses, co-workers, community and church members. And and when do we when do we actually compete? I don't mm. quite understand it. So of course one of the chapters in the playbook is cooperative play. Yeah, you know, I had a physical education teacher say to me once, I've eliminated most competition from my program. Oh, and he was a physical education teacher for kindergartners. I've eliminated physical competition from most of my program, but not all of it, because these children are going to have to compete every day of their lives. Mm. And I've pondered me. I wish I knew what the heck he meant. I mean, yeah, it's not hand-to-hand combat out there. There aren't only six A's to go around in a classroom that you have to fight for. Yeah, there are so many things I would it's say. Fascinating. That's, that's yeah, right. yeah. You know, it so the earlier is better thing. You know, means we've got to get them started in athletics and uh, academics as soon as possible. I mean, the stories I have heard, Victoria. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you see all this white hair. I mean. It's- <laughs> I'll turn my hair white. Um, Yeah, it's just so that's one of the reasons play is not a part then. And 
And if you believe they have to get started in academics and athletics as soon as possible, we're talking push down curriculum. Mm-hmm. We're talking, you know, direct instruction and instructional time two phrases I'm not very fond of, as early as preschool. I mean, I heard a story about one-year-olds expected Mm -hmm. to sit for 20 minutes and they were doing the flashcards of the letters and numbers. One-year-olds sitting for 20 minutes? Yeah, I just I I I I'm very rarely at a loss for words, but that's yeah. the thing. You know, it's crazy. So they're not going outside as often, and their parents are enrolling them in after-school programs. You know, in hopes that they'll become Olympians. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So there's all of that going on, and then the other major thing is the fear factor, or one of the other major things is the fear factor. I had somebody told me that she doesn't let her. I guess he was maybe six at the time. Her son go outside by himself. And I asked, why not? She said, because you never know who might be lurking around the corner. Mm. That is a huge myth. Mm -hmm. I mean, anybody who would like reassurance should go to Lenore Skenazy's Free Range Kids website. Mm -hmm. She also has Let Grow and read some of the statistics. Uh, Although I have found that when I've tried, the statistics don't seem to sink in. They don't seem to comfort people in the way that I'd hope. That's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I run a a parent-child nature classes here in Beverly. And the thing that I have found most and what parents who come say is, oh, yes, we've tried the soccer. We've tried the all these different sports. We got the cleats. And literally, they're they're like three-year-olds. Yeah, yeah. When foot-eye coordination isn't fully developed until <laughs> nine or ten. Know. Hello. Like, <laughs> like, well, they never touched the ball. And I was actually running down the field with them. And, it, and, and then they come into this outdoor classroom, which we call the Secret Gardens, oh. with all of these different places where they can visit. And it's just, it's childhood led and there's a little bit of structure in terms of different activities that they can choose but it's all it's all on them and the parents are just you can see the stress just decrease like to just roll off of them like finally there's something that we can that the children can go to that's not this competitive uh arena but it's also not age appropriate right the, the soccer the soccer being right 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 so so does it take seeing the children in action for the light bulb to go on? Is that what's happening? It's see, it's the parents seeing the, the their children completely and wholly engrossed in playing in a mud kitchen. Engrossed or, and joyful. And, and joyful and laughing. And they're like, and I had one shot, one parent come up to me and said, uh, thank you for doing this. This is the only class that my child has not wanted to walk out of he's usually the first one to leave and Uh yeah and it was like and i was sort of like well thank thank nature it's no i'm just putting it all together but it's these outdoor experiences where they can play yeah it's oh that's wonderful that's just wonderful Uh, i i think we have forgotten how to trust children you Mm -hmm. know to do their own thing and be responsible for their own joy (laughs) because that's what early childhood is all about Uh, i read an article recently and i wish i could tell you where it was just a few days ago actually and it was why does america hate its children or something of that wow what a topic i mean what a headliner Mm-hmm. Well, you know, when I think about some of the decisions that come down from adults, many of whom know not a damn thing about children, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I, I've, I've said for a long, long time that not only do they not know children, but they clearly don't like them. Mm-hmm. And I mean, 
if you take one-year-olds and you're trying to force them to sit for 20 minutes to learn letters and numbers, you you clearly don't know children. And if you you're the person who has pronounced that edict or you know made that policy, you couldn't possibly like them either. I mean, children are so unhappy these days unless mm-hmm. they're in programs like yours. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there there were there were a lot of examples in that article that I hadn't considered before and some that were validating my opinions and yeah yes i i passed it on and i will continue to pass it on because we need to think about and you know above all else else we spend so little on early childhood in this country i mean we're supposed to be the richest country in the world and we spend almost nothing on children and families but oh my do we give it lip service yeah Yeah. sorry my cynical angry (laughs) bitter side is coming out (laughs) It's not just the white man. Turn into this bitter old cynic. <laughs> well, it's it. There needs to be change. There needs to be change, and more. I think more kids need the opportunity to move and to move creatively. And that's when I was studying to be a dance therapist. Is that the essence of? It's not just children that need to be uh, moving creatively. It's also adults. I, mm. I worked with elderly blind adults in dance. Wow. But really thinking about just movement. Uh, and looking at that piece within early childhood or any any age for that matter, any tips and tricks that you can uh, share with our audience, our listeners, that in terms of they kind of see themselves maybe with two left feet or they think, oh, I don't really know that much about movement or I don't know much about physical education. Any mm. top easy things that you think they could do to get their class Moving. Yeah, well, the, you know, I've run into that. Or what I've been in this field for forty-three years this year. <laughs> oh, I think it's gonna be forty-four. Wow. Okay, so time just keeps a ticking. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I have run into that <laughs> a lot. I mean, the word movement and children do tend to scare people, especially because they haven't had any preparation for it in their teacher prep programs or whatever. I mean, my textbook is called Experiences in Movement and Music, and it went to the fifth edition and then just stopped there eons ago because the col- the few colleges and universities that had courses that it was appropriate for don't have them anymore. Oh, you know? wow. I never or thought of that. Very, very few of them have it. So they don't know what is she talking about when she says that children need to be moving in physical education. Oh, my gosh. That's something I hated when I was a kid, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. I hated it when I was a kid. But mm-hmm. it, in early childhood, it does not look like it did when we were in school. So I would, I would say it's really just a matter of you don't know have to know everything about movement. You don't have to be a motor development specialist. I ask that you you give the same level of observation to the children in the physical development, in the physical domain, as you do in the others. Watch them if if you see they're having problems. Motor delays aren't that common, but they don't go away on their own. And a child who feels uncomfortable moving in the early years will likely feel uncomfortable moving in later years. So Mm -hmm. we need to be watchful of that sort of thing. I mean, mostly if you use a problem-solving approach, which is what I use, and that's getting fancy sounding, I suppose, it's a matter (laughs) of just presenting the challenges, you know, just issuing invitations. Show me how slow a turtle moves, how slowly a turtle moves. And so the teacher who feels she has two left feet doesn't have to worry about it because it's best if they're not participating at that level because the children will just imitate what they're doing. We Mm -hmm. want them 
to mm-hmm. show you their impression of how slowly a turtle moves or what round looks like or how wide they can be, you know, whatever it might be. And the wonderful thing about that is that they're not just moving, but they're learning. And moving and learning was the original title of my company. Because the one skill we know they will need now and forever, no matter what crazy careers, you know, come up in the future, is problem solving. Mm Mm-hmm. And if you give them opportunities to do that, I mean, show me how crooked you could be. If you have 12 children, you're going to get 12 different responses. And all you have to do is say, oh, I see Susan is is crooked way down low. And Harry is is crooked in a, you know, way up high shape. And if you can point out a third one, even better, so that they begin to realize it's okay to find their own solution. It's it's divergent problem solving, lots and lots of different solutions for a single challenge. So we're engaging the brain as well as the body. The two can't be separated. And that is a big, big myth, too, that the Mm -hmm. mind and body have nothing to do with one another. I remember the story I heard about when the Texas State School Board was trying to determine if the kids should have daily physical education. And one school board member said, well, if they have daily PE, they'll be healthy, but dumb. Oh, I I, I mean, there is so much research. I I mean, I I mentioned a little bit of it about being outside, but that moderate to vigorous intensity movement, which really can only take place outdoors because there isn't sufficient room indoors usually Mm. feeds the brain with water oxygen and glucose that's brain food so if we're so concerned about the brain we can't forget about the body the moderate to vigorous intensity is the you're breathing a little heavier your heart is pounding a little harder to even more so if we just let the children be children yeah (laughs) they'll they'll get that cardiovascular endurance and the muscular strength and the muscular endurance and and all the things. I mean, we're supposed to cherish these children and we're taking away movement and play and the things that nature intended for them. Yeah. Like we have a better plan than nature does. Well, I think it's fear, like you said, and and, and it's control. I think it's be out of, Mm. we need to control out of this fear that we have to keep them safe, but, by keeping them safe, we're actually hurting them. We are. And we're not because we're afraid of the risk factor or oh. them, them being children. And, and them being children is getting dirty, getting risky, doing, you know, that's a whole, it's a whole another can of worms. But Oh, yeah. There's another yeah. chapter on risky play <laughs> in the book. Um, and rough and tumble, you know, all the things that we think we have to protect them from, but we are doing exactly the opposite. Mm-hmm. I mean, if we think about risky play, if we never, if they're never exposed to those risks, if they never have the chance to make the decision as to whether or not they can jump over the puddle or balance on the fallen log, if they never have the chance to to try those things, They never will know how to assess risk in the future. And some of the research I came across when I was writing the book talked about the fact that children who are are allowed to take risks as children avoid things like unwanted pregnancies and drugs in the future. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I I just I know that 
parents and all early childhood professionals aren't going to be familiar with with the research but <laughs> yeah it's it's there's so much to th- really think about and to put forward and and you're doing so much in terms of writing mm-hmm. writing your books and you've really starting a movement in terms of uh, def- defending childhood and that's yeah. exciting i mean that's it's sad that we have to do that but it's exciting to really believe that we are stronger together and oh yes we can we can't just single handedly like you said earlier, just focus on one child and that one child is going to succeed. We really need to, as we teach in these cooperative games, how we can be be a community. And yes. how just like the reasons why I started this podcast was how can we all just start this these conversations where we can learn to work together to become a greater force. Yeah. I mean it's true that there's strength in numbers. And in Spark a Revolution in Early Education, you know, I, I talk about the fact that we as early childhood professionals have a responsibility, an obligation, really, to get the correct information to parents because they're receiving so much misinformation, mm-hmm. you know, and you're doing that just by letting the parents observe the children at play. And that's one of the things I recommended in the book. Let the parents see the joy mm-hmm. if it's through photographs through video or in person, whatever it takes. Help them understand what the children are learning through all of this. I mean, it does become frustrating and tiring to have to justify or speak in terms of movement and play, um, speak of movement and play in terms of academics. Well, you know, they're doing this right now, and that falls into the category of science or emergent literacy, you know, right. but whatever. And those takes. are the conversations I'm having. I mean, it's really saying, you know, your child is this dad sort of was just like, I've never seen him like this. And I'm like, well, he's in the mud kitchen. It, the research is showing that kids that are in the mud, it's tapping into all of their senses. So they're get they're learning the most in this particular uh, invitation of learning. And so it's, and then they're like, huh? And I said, yeah. So if you put him in cleats on a field, again, like you said, before they they're not developmentally ready for that not physically not socially not emotionally yeah. and not <laughs> cognitively you know, those rules you know you get the beehive yeah stuff, right? <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, all these little bodies chasing the ball as chasing one around and, and i think it's like you said i love that you use the word myth because i think parents follow parents and they're like oh well the, the thing to do at this age is to get them into all of these organized sports and it's like no you know you really (laughs) want to allow them to play we have a little bit of and give them a little bit of structure like a circle time or a song or in or incorporating those things so when they do move on they they have connected but it's so much of that is connecting with themselves and and parents seeing that one of the things you can tell parents and i loved your response to that father I've never seen him like that. He said, wow, (laughs) Um, is that the more senses used in the learning process, the more information they gain and retain. And that's what learning in early childhood is supposed to be multimodal. You know, you've got to use as many senses as possible. You're sitting in a chair doing a worksheet. That's vision only. Oh, worksheets suck. (laughs) (laughs) This just popped into my head, but our conversation is reminding me of my time teaching dance and and whatnot. But I 
And just a tip for anybody that's listening, I love drums and incorporating drums into a movement exercise, which you can do inside and or outside, um, but just simple beats on a drum and different size drums, playing with drums, incorporating drums into this sort of movement. It makes me want to think I can do it. I'm like, I haven't done that in so long, but it's uh, just think about drums and do you, do you have you this is sort of our wind up, but have you incorporated drums and things like that into your... Yeah, and they don't always have to be actual drums. I mean, you can make yeah. sound with, with all kinds of things. That's true. Um, and there are times, you know, when we've been working on on rhythm lessons, for example, and rather than trying to get the children to match the rhythm you are laying out, because that's more difficult for them uh, at that stage, you match their rhythm as they're, say, marching around the room or the outdoors, and you match the rhythm with your drum beats. Um, And eventually, when you hand the drum to a child, the power (laughs) that they feel is just wonderful to behold. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, 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 I love the idea of, of making sounds with, with all kinds of things and think about the different sounds that are outside, you know, and you mentioned senses. I mean, that's where it's at. Yeah. And you're not going to have the same things to smell and touch and see and hear indoors as you do outdoors. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, I've also heard stories from educators who feel like their teaching practice has been revitalized. And I think that partly is because they, they too are outside and having the benefits of, and I just did a workshop and teachers were like, yeah, we went on this wonderful walk and they felt guilty because they, it was so wonderful. They're like, you know, it was like a guilty. Understand. I know, I didn't either. So it felt like a guilty pleasure but they think that they were not that the children were not learning anything that they were not properly teaching i think so i think it's changing the mindset of educators in terms of what education looks like yeah and so when it when education looks playful then they're maybe not learning so much so it's really that love when you use the word myth because it's it's the myth of what does education look like and what should it feel like yeah Oftentimes that should be done inside. I think that there is a difference. Speaking from my perch of old age here, I mean, being over four decades in the field, I think there is definitely a difference between us oldies and and the new teachers coming in who perhaps did not play as often as we did, Mm -hmm. who have grown up with technology. And whereas a teacher my age or, you know, a decade or so younger had the experience of, of play and knew the old fashioned early childhood education would not feel guilty taking the children for a walk. They would see Mm -hmm. how necessary that is. But the young, the young teachers, it's just one more battlefront. So many seeds to talk about. I could talk to you all day. (laughs) I know. Same here. (laughs) Same here. (sighs) But is there anything else that we missed that you would like to share with our community that uh, your work, your book coming out, where we can find you, anything that you would like like to add? Yeah. Um, I mean, you can find me at raypika.com. And when you get there, listeners, <laughs> you can click on the, I don't know, this little box that pops up and it will give you access to my free resource library. There are 19 or 20 books there, eBooks that you can download for free. And I have no idea what the subjects are right now, <laughs> but there are, <laughs> there's lots of active learning experiences and Probably something about the outdoors. 
<laughs> yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. You are a wealth of information. Oh, I've got a lot of opinions, that's for sure. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I guess they've served me well in this profession. But <laughs> Anything else you'd like to share? I, I just want to stress how important it is to help parents understand what you're helping parents understand, the value of play and movement, and that this is what, those are the tools nature intended for children to learn, and that the mind and body are absolutely not separate. Almost a year ago, I started seeing, I've searched and searched, and I finally found the perfect chiropractor. And I've been sore in a lot of places and have neglected movement. I have neglected Mm -hmm. movement. But I was out there at 7.30 this morning for my walk. I go almost daily now, thanks Mm -hmm. to him. And I can't even tell you how it's changed my life. Being outside, getting the light. I don't get depressed in the winter anymore. You know, and having that physical activity, I'm much more, I have much more energy for those times when I'm indoors and need to do things. So, yeah. It's Um, a saving grace. I have to shout out to my 90-year-old mother who uh, was a dancer. And she, to this day, does her daily walk. And she says, you know, as much as she doesn't want to do it, but she'll walk around the block. And there's a little uh, hill and and it's mind-boggling. But again, if you, it's that mind-body, you got to have that positive self outlook in terms of yeah this is this is it's all connected and it's all connected it's, all it's connected. weird that any you know <laughs> that in the west you know we think that they're separate and it's yeah. a very strange belief yeah it's just as you said we could talk all day about we this. could talk all day <laughs> i want to thank you so much for your time and all the work that you've done, the movement that you've created. And I'm, I'm just honored to be that our paths have crossed. And again, can't say enough about your, the course that you taught that become author. That's how we found each other. Yeah. And you didn't become an author, but you became a podcaster. And I just love that. No, I just think that's cool. It's a whole other avenue for getting the word out, right? That's right. That's what what we need to do is get the word out. Get the word out. So thank you again. Thanks, Victoria. Thank you for joining us here at the Outdoor Classrooms podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with anybody who you think would enjoy it and follow us on Instagram. We'd love to continue the conversation. If you want to continue the conversation even deeper, please join us in the Circle community. The purpose of the Circle is to support, guide, and push you as you continually grow and sustain your outdoor classroom by providing the tools to help you set the right goals then actually follow through in achieving those goals with the support of our amazing community. Each month, 24-7, you get guidance and support from myself. You get to begin your journey with our new member roadmap. You get access to our outdoor teaching boot camp. You get to interact and learn from guest experts who are on our podcast. They come into our membership and join us to continue the conversations. You get to connect and collaborate during two live sessions a month. You get access to all our online workshops and masterclasses. You get get to dig deeper with our membership missions each month and you get to become an ambassador of joy for children. I hope you can join us at Outdoor Classroom. I will share the link in the show notes and we'll see you later. Come join us.